0: My name is Vicki, and welcome to BSF. We are going to enjoy Matthew 17 tonight, so let me pray and we will dive right in. Please pray with me. Lord, we ask that in these next minutes that you would help us to be good hearers and good learners of your word we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to things that we need to see about Jesus and open our eyes to things that we uh, have within ourselves or in our lives that are out of step with who he is and who he calls those who trust in him to uh, to be. And uh, Father, I pray for uh, all those in sound of my voice that you would be present with us in this time. Help us to focus on uh, the things that you want us to see in Matthew 17 and be with me as I speak. Would you guide and guard my words so that everything I say would bring glory to Jesus. Pray in his powerful name. Amen. Well, it's the season of Winter Olympics and an idea implicit in the Olympics. See, I've got my hat on. If you watch those, um, then and the commentators definitely brought, draw this out, is the idea that the competitors of the Olympics are products of process. There's a long backstory of uh, athletes' training and uh, process. Nobody wakes up uh last week or last month and just decided to walk on and compete in the luge or figure skating or snowboarding, nobody starts doing anything uh, at, at the Olympic level. No, rather years of training, years of sacrifice, and usually years of tutelage under a good coach uh, must come. And athletes have had injuries. They've had personal struggles and setbacks. They've probably, most of them, wanted to quit. And uh, one of the larger themes in Matthew is about the return of God's kingdom. Jesus is coming to reclaim what is his and to set all things right. Jesus will win, and he's coming to win. Uh, And in the mysterious wisdom of God, however, it is not just Jesus doing it all alone. Of course, he could do everything that needs to be done for him to uh, complete his gospel mission all by himself, but somehow it brings God more glory that Jesus rescues ordinary people and then gives them the privilege of learning and growing and being in the process of participating in Jesus' kingdom work, even though we are— as followers of Jesus, uh, slow to learn, stubborn often, and prone to failure. And as we study tonight, I think that we can learn that knowing Jesus, following Jesus is a journey, a journey of learning to hear Him, see Him, and obey, obey Him. Knowing Jesus is a journey of learning to hear Him, see Him, and obey Him. It's not about, following Jesus is not about not making mistakes. Or not, are always having the perfect answer for everything all the time. You and I are going to, unfortunately, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to be weak and faltering. We're going to do dumb stuff um, in the process. And yet, Jesus is better and more patient and has a better vision than the very, very, very best Olympic coach. Um, and he loves us as those who have put our trust in Him, and He trains us to believe Him, to hear Him, and then obey Him. Because as Christians, we don't start out knowing who Jesus is exactly. We don't know or understand exactly how all the parts of God's story fit together or exactly how it will play out. And we often very quickly forget what we have learned, Uh, but not only do we need to learn things, uh, truth, about the Lord, which he provides, uh, teaches us through his spirit um, as we participate and cooperate. But we also need to learn how to trust him. We need relational learning. Um, And so, that's where we're going to go. We're going to, let's remember where we are in Matthew. um, At the pivot point, uh, chapter 12, verse 14, the Jewish leaders uh, reject Jesus and start moving toward a a a plot, murderous plot. And so that's when Jesus uh, began his parable ministry. And we're still in the narrative section following the parables where Jesus is revealing and concealing. And this narrative section is Jesus' time uh, before going to the cross is coming shorter and shorter. Uh, Jesus is investing in teaching and training his disciples. And we can see that's more, uh, that is hap- going to happen more and more particularly the 12 men whom he has called to follow him. And Jesus progressively reveals more and more of who he is, what it means to follow him and to know him, what it means to look like or what it looks like to be his people. And so, last week, we saw in Matthew 16, Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter confessed rightly, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And uh, that was a truth revealed to him by God the Father, though Peter also had to contribute to that, too. He had to think about it and and put things together, uh, I suggest to you. But M- chapter 17 is Matthew's exclamation point to Peter's answer. Um, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and we're going to see that more fully what that means in this chapter. So, we're going to do Matthew 17 in two parts, uh, verses 1 through 13, about Jesus' unveiled glory on a mountain, and then verses 14 through 27, Jesus' veiled glory invades the valley. So, we're going to, we'll jump right into uh, verses our first division, Jesus' unveiled glory on a mountain, verses 1 to 13. So, open your Bibles up if you don't uh, have already those uh, open or turned on. Uh, And we start, uh, let's read verse 1. And uh, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, we don't know which mountain this was, Perhaps it was Mount Tabor or Mount Hermon. Um, a lot of important things happen on, the mount- on mountains in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. And the, the fact that Matthew includes this detail, the six days after six days, uh, may also evoke the, uh, the majesty of the holy God meeting with Israel at Mount Sinai In Exodus, and so there were uh, six days after the the feast that the Lord had with the the elders, and then uh, Moses went up the mountain to receive the covenant uh, the covenant terms of what they what Israel and the Lord had committed themselves to, and so on this mountain uh, at that time Mount Sinai there was a cloud descended, um, but On this mountain, uh, verses 2 and 3, what happened uh, mysteriously, and he, Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So, in a mysterious way, Jesus' physical appearance somehow changed. And if you look at verse two, he was transfigured before them suggests, as does what the father's command, listen to him at the end of uh, verse five, suggests that this was for those three disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John. And so, it When Moses met with God at Mount Sinai, his face radiated. And when he came down from the mountain, he had to put a veil over his face uh, for other people because they couldn't look at him. And in Moses' case, the glory was reflective, like the moon reflects the sunlight. Uh, It was not Moses' glory, but God's glory on his face. In this case, it was like God the Father briefly lifted the veil, and the Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, could be visibly seen for who he truly is. Jesus himself did not change. He was, uh, this is a, Part of who he always has been from eternity past. He has had this glory, and it's a preview of his future uh, exaltation when he returns to the earth, and every knee shall bow to him as Lord. So, Jesus' glory is not reflective, but it emanates from him as he is God. Fully man, and yet also mysteriously fully God, um, the end, the true Moses, uh, the truer and better Moses. When you talk about glory, uh, can, that's a really hard word to wrap our brains around. Glory is the full display or weight of all of God's perfect character: His wisdom, mercy, compassion, justice, holiness, power, majesty. Um, and so to glorify God, to glorify Jesus, is in that kind of churchy language, is to cause Jesus' character to be more fully on display than before, to honor Jesus or, or God. In the ways that uh, reflect their character, bring honor to them, and so there's several places in the Bible where the Lord's glory is made visible, like this: uh, Acts nine, Paul on the road to Damascus; Revelation one, uh, where John saw the Lord in the island of Patmos. But also, we see um, Jesus is not alone on this mountain, there's Moses and Elijah. We, again, these are, it's mysterious and we aren't, Matthew hasn't told us why these two happened or even what they're talking about. Um, but together they could represent God's law and his prophets, meaning that all of God's plan, uh, is coming together in Jesus. And, um, into this amazing and mysterious scene, we have two speakers, um, Peter first, and then God. And so, Peter, a man of action, uh, blurts out something. We'll read verse four. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And so, Peter, uh, Peter may have been thinking correctly. This is awesome. This is significant, and he recognized the holiness. There was some sort of significance, and even your translation may have the word tabernacle for the tent, which, um, again, the, Moses would have received the instructions for the tabernacle on Mount Sinai in a in this sort of in a typical scene. But uh, it Peter seems to be thinking that Jesus is on par with Moses and Elijah rather than be being supremely exalted um, above them. Uh, so, God the Father, however, does not, he corrects Peter uh, lovingly just by <laughs> sort of changing, <laughs> cutting Peter off. So, he was still, Peter was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them um, which reminds us of the Shekinah glory the uh, the bright glory, the pillar of cloud um, and can represent the Holy Spirit, and a voice from the cloud said, "'This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, and so these words are almost exactly what God the Father spoke publicly at Jesus baptism. Uh, chapter three, verse seventeen. But here he is. It's now. It's it's still public in that there are three, um, but these are a special three. So it's it's a semi-private revalidation of Jesus to Peter, James, and John, where uh, affirming Jesus is the faithful promised promised King, and it's within the depth of their loving Father Son relationship. Um, now, it's it's important for us to recognize that to be on this mountain and to see this and to hear this is revelation that's given to these three men, Peter, James, and John. And because they have received more, more will be expected of them. And that is going to help us understand Jesus' strong rebuke that we're going to come to in verse 17. So, kind of make an earmark on on that, what you have seen or what has been revealed to you, you have accountability to respond to. Um, And so, the Father's added command from what he had uh, declared at Jesus' baptism is the last clause, listen to him. And the sense of listen is to not just hear with your ears, but to understand and to respond in obedience. And it's not just a call for Peter, James, and John because Matthew has included us as readers into this, uh, we are included in this inner three now that we can hear. This is a call for all people. And as Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 5 affirms, Jesus is God's son, and he speaks from God and represents his perfect majesty and glory. So, that, that is a little mini principle I think we can learn is that God's people can and should expect Jesus to speak to them. God's people can expect Jesus to speak to them. Uh, so, we're going on in verse 6. Um, what happens then when the disciples, it seems like when they heard the Father's words, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, "'Rise and have no fear.' And when they lift up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only." So, the majesty of God's glory and power it seems to overwhelmed the disciples with fear, and yet here is the mystery of Jesus fully an in fully infinite, powerful, glorious God, and yet also with that God character, fully man, tender, compassionate, personal, willing to draw near and enter into. Uh, human relationship. And so, it is right for the disciples and for us as unholy people, apart that we are unholy apart from the work of Christ, um, to fear the holy God. And yet, behold the grace and the work of Jesus. In Jesus, this holy God moves towards sinful, rebellious, foolish people. And because of Jesus' work on the cross, we can hear him say, do not be afraid, rise. If you trust, have trusted in Jesus and His blood, that He has paid for your unholiness, your rebellion, then these words are for you. You cannot you He calls you to not be afraid, to rise, to stand unafraid and unashamed in His presence uh, in Christ. So in verse 9 through 13, they're going down the mountain um, after this experience. And so, similar to the warning that Jesus had given in uh, chapter 16, verse 20, um, they were not supposed to uh, tell about these secret things, um, tell about this special identity. As they were coming down from the mountain, verse 9, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So this was not a forever secret, but until he was being, but until he was raised from the dead. Now, but the, that seems to go straight past the disciples. They do not pick up on that, um, but rather it seems like they're thinking about Elijah and uh, probably the specific prophecy that we got to look at in our lesson, Malachi 4, verse 5, that Elijah is supposed to come before the Messiah, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so, as Jesus was a Messiah, how does that work together? Jesus answers cryptically in verse uh, 11 and 12 there seems to be a future element where Elijah will restore all things. So, probably still coming in yet, uh, he indicates that Elijah has already come in verse 12. And it's significant in verse 13 to watch the disciples connect the dots and understand they are learning. They're growing. Um, John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus' ministry. And so, um, they are they are learning to connect. Connect how God's plan comes together in Christ. And so, a principle I think that we can learn from this chapter of Jesus' magnificent unveiled glory is that your faith in Jesus is not misplaced. Your faith in Jesus or mine is not misplaced. And I was thinking about um, the Wizard of Oz if you've seen that movie, it's a very old movie, but there's a, there's a character who um, lives in this majestic space. And whenever people are very afraid to approach him and there's booming lightning and flashes and smoke, it's very scary. Um, and there's always uh, – there there was – promises that the person made, the voice made, and it was very um, loud and booming. And yet we discover through the story with that, that uh, was a sham. There was a man behind a curtain and he was uh, silly and foolish, and he could not make good on any of his promises. Uh, he could not live up to the hope that they had placed in him. The characters had placed in him. And um, if you've ever met, uh, like a, there's there's a lot of bigger than life characters of on the um, you know television or media or in real life. And if you've ever uh, seen documentaries or maybe happened to meet some real life big people in person, um, they often, more often than not, at least in my experience, the person behind this big than life character is small, smaller. Uh, They are lesser, not more, than we imagined. And we can become cynical and we can think everyone is lesser then nobody lives up to that. But I suggest to you, Matthew presents Jesus in the opposite way. That his uh, his glory is veiled. So unlike the Wizard of Oz, it starts out big and loud and that ends up to being nothing, that Jesus is very veiled. And so he taught with authority. Um, he out, has outwitted every trap of the of, of his opponents. His miraculous works that he fed thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread and fish. He've, he's healed cripples. He's cast out demons. He's even walked on water. With those things, they are big things. And yet, and you, we have to watch very carefully. And it's almost like when that, when everybody ate and was satisfied, the thousands, there weren't any big flashing lights or wasn't booming voices or smoke. Uh, it was just, uh, it was veiled, and so. But less we think Jesus is is just, uh, is subdued. Matthew here has allowed us to see behind the veil. And so, rather than a smaller, more insignificant person, we see brilliance. Jesus is more. He is glorious and powerful. He is God's beloved son and God is well-pleased with him. God upholds Jesus as more. And which tells me and you teaches us that our faith in Jesus is not misplaced, this God, it will not abandon his beloved Son. He will see him through. Um, Jesus' revealed glory promises the best is yet to come for those of us who believe in Jesus. There will be suffering, there will be the, the pain of the cross that Jesus was talking about um, for all of Jesus' followers. and yet, Jesus is bigger and he's better, and he's more powerful than all the bad, than any kind of sacrifice, than anything that we could give up. So, you and I can take heart. There is more to Jesus, not less, and the best is yet to come. So, we don't see Jesus face-to-face yet like Peter, James, and John did um, in his majesty. We don't even see him face-to-face in his veiled glory because he is, he is ascended in heaven and he is waiting for the Father to put his, the enemies under his enemies under his feet. Um, but just as in the pages of Matthew, discerning Jesus at work in the scripture and in our lives, uh, requires careful watching, reflection, prayer, faith. But God has promised that our faith in his son Jesus is not misplaced and all those who trust in him will see him fully as in Revelation 21. And as we wait in this time, Jesus, I suggest to you, continues to reveal himself to us uh, as we wait, grow us and um we encounter the Lord most directly through His Word. Have you experienced that? When you go to the Bible, do you expect that Jesus will reveal Himself to you? How has hearing and meeting Jesus made a difference in your life? Knowing Jesus is a journey of learning to hear him, see him, and obey him. The first section in this chapter was a mountaintop experience, a time when Jesus could be seen more clearly for who he truly is, the new and greater Moses, the new and greater prophet, capital P, and coming down into the valley as he does, verses uh, 14 to 27, things get murkier or at least veiled. His uh, In the valley, Jesus is still glorious, but he is veiled. Um, and He shines his glory in ways, however, that can still perfectly reveal his perfect character. Jesus invades our ordinary reality with his glory, and Matthew gives us three short scenes. And the first is, um, verses 14 to 21, Jesus' glory uh, is as life-giving rebuke. And so, when Jesus and the three disciples come down the mountain, they met with a a, a situation not dissimilar from the situation that Moses and Joshua met when they came down the mountain. It's chaos. And verse, uh, let's read 14 and six, fourteen 14 through 16. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, Jesus, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And so, what's the main problem? Um, so, there's a, there is a failure in Jesus' ministry to accomplish the things that we have learned as readers to anticipate from Jesus' delegated um, mission. And so, uh, Matthew is going to help us focus less on the boy and more on the greater problem of the disciples um, But before we do that, let's take a brief look to note the faith of this man. Um, Jesus' disciples had already failed him and his son, but he came to Jesus anyway. And so, I think that is a mini lesson that you and I can learn, and we need to learn, that God's people may fail us. In fact, they probably will fail us. But Jesus is faithful. And the heart of faith turns toward Jesus in that pain, through the church hurt, through the through the problems. Um, yes, you're right. The pastor shouldn't have acted that way. Yes, you're right. The church members should not have um, behaved in that way. However, Jesus is faithful, and the heart of faith turns toward him. No one else has the words of eternal life. No one else can offer healing from how you or ones that you care about have been hurt. No one else has God's full glory and uh, affirmation. So we see then. um, So again, the 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 focus is going to be on the disciples, um, and Jesus has a twofold rebuking response. First, he rebukes the disciples. Then he rebukes um, in a way to heal the boy. So verse seventeen is the he rebukes. I think the disciples though that maybe you can wrestle with that uh, too. That That's my suggestion. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And so, maybe you like me, um, your ears are jarred by Jesus' stern words. Um, I, I've wrestled with this a lot this week, um, but I've come to this question, what do we do when Jesus does things or says things that offend us, that don't fit into the, uh, the parameters that we've created in our minds or um, for who Jesus is? Do we think that Jesus' rebuke is when it comes is unneeded? Do we think that Jesus' rebuke when it comes is unloving and um, of all the generations um, that have uh, up to this point in history, the one that had received the most revelation from God was this very generation. So, when Jesus said, he's speaking maybe to his disciples specifically, but kind of in a broad way that seems to incorporate the entire generation. The um, Because they had received the most revelation from God, where Jesus, fully God, Fully human was walking among them. Um, they they are accountable for that revelation, and evidently uh, Jesus' physical absence, going up in the mountain, they reduced. Uh, they there was something that either twisted their faith or caused them to not trust in Jesus. Um, and, but Jesus, note this, loves them to correct them and to stay with them a little longer. And then the second rebuke that Jesus offers, it's life-giving, is to heal the boy that's constantly being, his life is being threatened. And so, um, he was born to the disciples, then disciples couldn't, had no power to heal him. But Jesus says, bear him to me, bring him here to me, or the the Greek word is Bear, um, or it can be translated uh, that, and Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. And so, this images the ultimate return of Jesus to defeat Satan and release the captives, those who are captive. Um, in these, uh, the last three verses of this uh, little this first little scene, the disciples seek Jesus' teaching and correction on their failure, and this is evidence of their growth. Uh, His words were stern to them, but if you look at the the same Greek verb that's used for the man coming in verse 14 is the same Greek verb that's used for the disciples coming to Jesus in 19. The disciples have faith, and when you fail— Uh, When I fail, the right response is to come to Jesus and be restored and to learn from him. Um, And so, they had likely, uh, the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, verse 19, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So, they'd likely done this kind of thing before in Jesus' name, say in, uh, after he sent them out in um, chapter 10. Uh, there's a part specifically where he said cast out demons in chapter 10 as he commissioned These disciples. I was just going to find that for you. Should have had that ready. But, um, okay, heal the sick. Verse 10, verse 8. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. And so, we don't know exactly what went wrong. Remember, we as readers, Matthew has had us up on the mountain. We've been in the inner circle. So, we don't know exactly what's been going on. But Jesus knows. That's the key thing. He knows whatever they did, uh, it did not reflect faith. It reflected some sort of perverted thing. Maybe they were went on autopilot and just thought, if I say the right words, if I do these things, do um, there goes the demon. There's healing someone. Um, But the overall message that Matthew has been presenting to us is that righteousness is not about doing superficial things. It's rooted in the heart. The key to successful Christian life is not a formula, but growth of a heart that is always seeking Jesus. And faith in Jesus has the power to do the impossible because the object of that faith Jesus has power. It's not because we just, you know, if we think really hard or hope really strongly, then we'll be able to do something. No, it's faith in Jesus, and Jesus is the one who whose power accomplishes it. It's a delegated power, um, but He delegates us again not to do whatever we want to do, but to be about His business, because that's what it. That's what learning to follow Jesus. Uh, involves to learn what it is to hear him, see him, obey him. Um, And serving Jesus is as much just as much about knowing him and trusting him than it is about the work himself. Okay, work itself. Okay, the short little, second short little scene of Jesus invading glory is through truth and another layer of teaching in verses 22 to 23. Jesus teaches his disciples again about his suffering, death, and resurrection. And so, what had started in Matthew 16, 21, from that time on, Jesus was preparing them and teaching them about what was going to happen. There was a new little aspect here that was added. So he's teaching in layers the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. That's the new part. Jesus will be betrayed. And their response is no longer denial what uh, as Jesus as Peter voiced. Uh, In famously in chapter 16, as we studied last week, never, Lord, this will never happen to you. now they are beginning to understand, and they have grief. They were dra- greatly distressed in verse, the end of verse 23. Um, they're listening, to even though they didn't fully understand, they are listening to Jesus, which was the command that God had just given in verse 5, and that is faith. Uh, they are beginning to understand that the path to Jesus' glory, the path to restoration, the path of the true Messiah— includes and necessarily goes through suffering before uh, full glory. That is God's wisdom. And notice that Jesus does not chastise them for their grief. Grief. Weeping, uh, distress is the right response to sin's brokenness. Um, It's a real part of living in this world. And yet, um, as David said in Psalm 30, weeping, weeping may last for the night, so it does last. For a time, but joy comes in the morning. Uh, learning part of following Jesus is learning how to grieve with hope. Um, that's that's faith of learning how to navigate grief and hope within God's larger story and live that out in our lives. Okay, the third and final little scene in chapter seventeen is about uh, the temple tax. Jesus. Teaches Peter through the issue of the temple text. So in Exodus thirty verse eleven through sixteen, God had provided in His law a way for the upkeep of their worship of the place that Israel was supposed to worship Him in His actually palace, a symbolic palace um, within. Uh, you know that 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 would need upkeep, and so everyone over age twenty at a census must must offer. Or the in Exodus thirty it used the word ransom, which is interesting. Um, a half shekel, um, which is equivalent, as I've read, is uh, two drachma, which would be about two days' wages, and so. <clears throat> uh, When they came to Capernaum, which is on the Sea of Galilee in the north, Jesus' uh, home, kind of hometown operating, uh, base of operations, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. (laughs) I don't know what Peter was really meaning there, but we can see Jesus Uh, Jesus loves him enough to correct him. And when he, Peter, came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. So, Jesus, uh, because the temple tax belongs to God the Father, Jesus, who is God the Son, and all who are hidden in him are exempt from paying this tax. And yet it seems Jesus is willing to set aside his rights so not to stumble them. But Peter, he does so in a way that Peter especially gets to see more of what kind of son slash king Jesus is. And so, um Jesus gives this fisherman a very specific instruction. However, not to give effects to them. Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. How would Jesus know that it was the fish? Why did Jesus provide in that way? Peter must have had those and many other questions as he. Uh, presumably, though Matthew doesn't tell us this, presumably Peter obeyed and uh, discover, got to discover that Jesus' words were true. Principle I think we can learn from this second division is that Jesus trains those whom he loves. Jesus trains those he loves. Uh, When I was growing up, I had chores around the house. Maybe you can relate. Uh, My mom would make the list, and I can remember um, having a regular thing was to clean the counters in the kitchen. And uh, this was never what I really wanted to do with my day. And typically, it would be slapdash. I would get the rag wet, and it probably wasn't wrung out well. And it was like, you know smearing it all over and then maybe crumbs were going on the floor or, um you know i'm like and then i'd be like oh i'm done and run off and play and uh mom would call me back and she would i remember very explicitly she would be like okay look right here what do you see right here and there was you know a big pile of gritties or sticky things or um parts where i had not cleaned the counter. And then, uh, you know, so I was like, Oh, and, you know, uh, wash the counters again, you know, like wash them again. And then, um, oh, I'm done and run off and play. And then mom would call me back and show me another pile. And, um, another thing, you know, and this went on, I don't remember how many times this happened. Um, and it was not just once <laughs> that, uh, one time when I had to clean the counters that mom called me back for several encores, um but when I was when grown up I realized it would have been way easier for her to just clean it herself than to deal with my belly aching and to try to come back you know try to get me to look and t- see and teach and learn how to um, actually clean a counter um, which of course um, it wasn't actually about the cleaning counter cleaning ability though I can tell you I can I can clean a counter really well right now um, but my mom loved me enough to correct me and train me she was patient when I didn't get it when I didn't understand what I was supposed to do or how I was supposed to scoop the crumbs or um, you know when when how many times you needed to go over it um, and in a similar way, uh, but obviously, much 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 greater, Jesus corrects and disciplines those he loves, and in fact, those who believe in jesus i e those you know ones that we know that he loves us we can we are not exempt from his correction, in fact, it guarantees it. He loves us too much to let us not be corrected. How do you feel about that? Jesus will correct you. Uh, if you are a follower of his and in fact, if you are not a follower of his, Jesus will still correct you um, and it's an opportunity for you to respond to him. does it make you feel grumpy? you make you wonder like why does it have to be so hard uh, sometimes I wonder why does Jesus let me fail him um, will you invite him to correct you, and will you invite him? will I invite him to not just teach me about those things, uh, whatever it is that I'm being corrected on, but to understand the deeper love that He has for us. Um, we started about thing. We started by thinking about the Olympics, and Olympic coaches uh, have, I'm sure, various expectations of their athletes. Um, Jesus has expectations of His followers, and He does not expect you and I, you and me, to be perfect. He calls us to be faithful. Uh, And when we make mistakes, to respond uh, to his loving correction with faith, uh, to trust him, when we are walking through uh, situations that seem out of control, was you walk with Jesus in the valley or on the mountain. you We can expect him to work in our hearts so that we will love him more. Um, An effective faith is a relationship where we learn increasingly to depend on God. Um, what is the impossible mountain in your life? you've pushed against it, it will not budge. You've cried to crawl it up and you cannot get over it. There is nothing that you can do to get around it. Will you bring it to Jesus? Will you ask him to help you strengthen your faith, that he would strengthen your faith? Because as you grow in Jesus, you will find him bigger like Lucy did in uh in Narnia with uh the King Aslan that every time when she, as she grew he grew and Jesus is bigger than our problems he is more loving Than we can possibly imagine, and I uh, encourage you, if you are a follower of Jesus, to lean into that this week. Will you ask Him to uh, to correct you and to love you and to train you, help you to be a learner? Uh, And if you are not a follower of Jesus, and by um, some kindness in your heart, you have endured (laughs) through this video um, and and my many words. I encourage you to look at Jesus, to learn about him, and consider the claims that he is making. Um, if what God says about him is true, if Matthew has recorded that accurately, um, God expects you and me to to listen to his beloved son. And um, there is no other way of salvation. There's no other way of pleasing God, of being in a relationship with God, apart from listening to, trusting, and following Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would drive your truth uh, and the image of your son, uh, the the truth about him and um, his heart for us. the willingness that he has to suffer on our behalf, that we would be, rec- that we could be reconciled to you. Uh, we ask that you would help us to learn those truths this week. And I pray that, um, these things that we have heard and thought about would, um, would not go in and out of our ears, but that we would be uh, learners, that we would be listeners, and we would be those who obey Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.